Hey you, this is Takima and welcome to Converge for Change, the business of social justice podcast. Each week we discuss what's really happening on the front lines for racial, social, and economic justice and highlight the amazing grassroots leaders across our communities doing the deep work of freedom. But don't get it twisted, we keep the conversation all the way real. Whether you're a fellow justice warrior or looking to better understand what's happening behind the veil, we unpack it here. Who am I, you ask? I'm the owner of Converge, a social justice consulting firm whose purpose is to accelerate the creation of a radically just new world. I'm Catherine's granddaughter, a mother of two boys, your East Coast round the way homegirl, and a proud Howard University graduate. Most importantly, I'm a black woman, a leader in my community, and justice is my legacy. So let's get in this. Hey y'all, in our last show, COVID-19, Us Against the World, I recapped my travels from the U.S. to Jamaica and talked about the stark differences between the response in the U.S. to the pandemic and the response abroad. I also had a chance to sit down and chat with Deshant Savadia, the CEO and founder of the Amber Group and the developer of a game-changing app, Jam COVID-19. I really hope you all have had a chance to check it out and also check out the viral video that I did at I and Takima on Instagram. I have to admit, I feel so much safer here in Jamaica than I did back in the US because of the measures they put in place. It's also become really clear to me that rampant individualism, which is prevalent in the US versus you know, the way in which Jamaica has approached this as a community is really what uh, brings them to only having 10 COVID deaths versus, you know, right now we have 3 million positive COVID cases in the United States. It leaves me wondering, can we borrow some of the protocols and maybe even the technology that's been put in place here? Deshant talked about the Amber Group um, and creating more than a business, but building a organization to serve humanity. And the creation of this app was a gift to the world. So as the U.S. struggles to contain the virus and Jamaica continues to set uh, the pace in terms of best practices, seven other countries have also taken on this app and deployed it uh, and also some of the protocols and they are also seeing results. So, you know, can we take a look abroad and see what is happening and maybe adapt that to the U.S.? I will continue to keep you up to date on my travels across the beautiful island. So again, follow me at I and Takima on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm posting every day about what I'm experiencing here. So today I am excited to kick off a two-part series on the future of Black business. We're going to be talking to two of um, who I think are the leaders in terms of entrepreneurship, Black business. We have Aaron Walker from Camelback Ventures coming up next week. And this week, I get to talk to the powerhouse, none other than Jessica Norwood. All right, y'all, buckle in. It's going to be a great episode. All right. Name two Essence Magazine's 50 Entrepreneurs to Watch list. Jessica Norwood is a financial activist, impact investor, and social entrepreneur. She's the founder of The Runway Project, a suite of strategies that aim to close the racial wealth gap for good. Jessica is well known for what she calls Believe in You Money, placing early capital or a friends and family round into African-American companies nationwide. Jessica is a former board member 
member of the famed Highlander Research and Education Center, the same place that trained Dr. King and is trained in nonviolence organizing, anti-racism, and popular education facilitation. Today, Jessica serves on boards whose work unlock the spirit of imagination and creativity needed to repair broken systems and practices. She serves on the boards of Emerging Strategies, Ideation Institute, Zill Multimedia, Worker Cooperative, and Society of Clotilda, which promotes wellness and healing among Black women as a strategy to repair the violence inherited by the transatlantic slave route. Widely recognized for her groundbreaking work in economic disruption, Jessica is a Center for Economic Democracy Fellow and immediate past fellow for RSF, Social Finance Integrated Capital Fellowship, Nathan Cummings Foundation Fellow, a former Ball Fellow for Local Economies, Common Future, a lifelong fellow of the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University and Southern University College of Business for Emerging Leaders, as well as the Political Power and Social Change Fellow of the Hip Hop Archive at the Hutchins Center of Harvard University. Her innovative work has been profiled in NPR, Next City, Essence Magazine, Conscious Company, Fast Company, and New York Times bestselling author of Decolonizing Wealth, Ega Villanueva, who you will meet soon in the coming weeks, calls her work the medicine modern philanthropy and investment need. Jessica splits her time between Alabama and California. Welcome to my sister friend, my... I'm, Everything, right? Like just the amazing Jessica Norwood. Thank you so much for joining us today on Converge for Change, the Business and Social Justice Podcast. I'm honored to have you. Thank you, Takima. I'm so happy to be with you and uh, and to talk all things fabulous Black girl magic and business. That is your lane. So I'm here for that. That's your lane. That's your lane. <laughs> Um, so, you know, as we get into the conversation, I, I love to allow the guests to really expand on their bio, right? That only tells us so much about who you are and, you know, and all of your amazing accomplishments and accolades. But can you tell us a little bit more just about your story, your journey, and if you can weave like one fun fact, one thing most folks don't know about Jessica, can you share that with us? Mm, my goodness, it's such a good question. So I am from Mobile, Alabama. Scratch that. I am actually from Pritchard, Alabama, which is a small bedroom community that borders uh, Mobile, Alabama, right on the Gulf Coast. In Alabama, there is beaches. There are beaches in Alabama. You did not know that, but there are. So I grew up going to the beach and eating local seafood and cuisine and everything. And now that I am a vegan, I am completely obsessed with trying to recreate that particular coastal taste in my vegan cuisine. So often, um, one of the things I love to do that you may not know about me is I love to cook food and take pictures of that food and post it up to make all my friends drool on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and I also love to post up content and do content curation around this intersectionality between what it means to have this Black experience and be interfacing with the, the global financial system and how that bumps up, rubs up, changes us and so forth. So 
I love my Instagram and Facebook posts. You can find food and uh, curated content on that subject matter. That's something you might not know about me. And I think that that thinking or, or sort of work that I do really does come from being from Pritchard, Alabama. I am the daughter of a former mayor. My family, my first cousin was also the mayor in Mobile. So we come from a very political family. I, I We used to joke that that was our family business. I studied politics in school and public administration. And I really thought that what I wanted to do was to maybe be a city manager when I was like 18 or um, run for public office, like my father and my cousins and so forth. And then really very quickly uh, got into that business and that field, specifically on the campaigns and election side, and started to understand very intimately how important finance was really to that process. We say the words campaign finance, but how much finance is really pushing the policies and the elected officials and all of these actors that we are really believing in in our democratic process around. There are other outside forces, namely capital and financial institutions that are shifting and making a different arrangement. And I um, very quickly started to think about that. In my 20s, I was a congressional intern um, in Washington, D.C. And, you know, so I did all of the sort of very formal things. I was running a nonprofit organization by the time I was like maybe 27, 28, um, the League of Independent Voters, League of Pissed Off Voters based in New York. And so a lot of the great folks that we know about, Adrian Marie Brown actually used to work for me there. And so it was a it was a renegade group of people who were really pushing back. Uh, I'm thinking about voter guides and how we support young people to actually get into the democratic process. But I was sitting there thinking a lot about the money. As an ED, I was raising money and I was raising it in a political climate. And I started to understand, like, if I didn't get out in front of this conversation about finance, everything that that we thought was possible for Black folks as far as their growth and movement as a culture and as a people would just never be possible. And so I, I think maybe around 30 or so years old, I'm, I'm, I'm aging myself. I look 30, everyone. But um, maybe about at 30 years old or so, I think um, I had enough and I came back to the region. And two weeks later or so, I think Hurricane Katrina hit. And that is probably around the time that you and I start to to meet one another, Takima, um, yeah. at that point. So um, I was really coming off of the heels of running a lot of electoral work in New York and Washington, D.C., and just really fed up with it and thinking about capital and finance from that place. And then Hurricane Katrina hits, which I always talk about as this big pivotal moment for me. And I, I imagine a lot of folks in our field, this was a really transformative moment mm-hmm. because um, it was the first time that I really understood um, when people said intersectionality or when they said systemic or institutional, I had never seen a full, you know, failure of everything. I had never seen housing fail and and um, transportation. And, you know, there were always like little pieces that were failing inside of an institution um, of education and so forth. But I had not seen it happen all at one time, all targeted towards um, Black people. I just hadn't seen it 
like that before. And it put a fire underneath me, which would later become all of the work that we'll talk about today around supporting businesses and some of the lessons that I learned from that. So, okay. There's so many things in that, that we got to talk about some more. Uh, One, we have such similar backgrounds. I also come from a political family of elected officials. So that's definitely one of those things that we connect on. And then that journey from the nonprofit space, the I was a congressional intern as well. But what you just said, two things you just said that really struck me was your journey from politics to thinking about capital and the thread that runs through this, because I know you, is where you are constantly thinking about liberation. Absolutely. Right? Of Absolutely. our people. So yes. what does that mean in the political space? What does that look like in terms of money, which brings you to the your next chapter? But all of that in service of the liberation of our people. The second thing that you just said to me that strikes me is this piece about Katrina and, and both of us, you know, being in the middle of, of that work, seeing the failure of all the systems as it related to Black people. And it's ironic that what we're experiencing right now with COVID-19 is a national failure when it comes to Black people. When Katrina was regional, you know, and very much, you know, a national story, but the experience of the work that we were doing on the ground at that time, advocating for federal resources and trying to bring these systems back online and reimagine these systems, it was such a regional project. Whereas what we're experiencing now with COVID-19, it's like everyone is seeing what we saw in that Katrina moment in terms of the systematic failure of American uh, democracy and systems when it comes to Black people, right? Um, And how fragile those systems are and how fragile and vulnerable our people are at the hands of those systems. So we got to come back and unpack that a little bit more. Jessica, can you talk a little bit about this next phase of the journey? And I said this to you in private, but I want to say it here on record. In many ways, I've been following behind you because you have journeyed from, you know, organizing and politics into this entrepreneurial space. And I've just been watching from afar. (laughs) And I, you know, I stepped out into my entrepreneurial journey five or six years ago. And, you know, you've always, to me, just been ahead in that space in terms of really trying to figure out how we reimagine, you know, capital and think about how we can use capital as a tool of liberation in our communities. Can you talk a little bit about kind of where that's taking you in your journey, the Runway Project, all the other amazing work? Yeah, yeah. So the Runway Project picks up right where we just left off, which is um, a post-Hurricane Katrina world that we are organizing in and we're thinking regionally as boldly as we can in that moment in time. Obviously, there are direct service needs that people have. But then there are also, as a group of us that are thinking about what does the infrastructure look like? I think we really did something that was that really shaped my life, which is that we all stayed very networked. Those three states or so that experienced 
Katrina, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, the organizers and people in those communities, I think through that built a different set of network and relationship after after that. And one of the things that happened post Katrina, we started talking about how we um, identified leadership. And so I started doing a lot of work around leadership. And in that place of thinking about leadership, there was this piece that I ended up writing um, as a consultant for the Ford Foundation. And this was interesting because the Ford Foundation had never given this size of money for Alabama until they had given it to me to to really start looking at not only leadership, but there was something else that was kind of, you know, needling at me during this Katrina time, which was this question of who who got to be, who, who gets to recover? What does resilient look like, right? So this becomes this larger question of Black resiliency in the face of a disaster. How does that happen, right? And there are multiple things we can think of. We can say leadership succession plans for these organizations. We have a lot of organizations at that particular point that were led by older folks um, and those folks have been on the front line since Dr. King and, and crossing the bridge. So they needed a respite and we needed to talk about what the transitions of leadership looked like in a way that was responsible and equitable and in, and in service and in love. There were other things that we were also really looking at, but one thing that nobody really talked about was the money, was the finance. It, it was, it was this little current that was always underneath it. And we just weren't lifting it up the way that I felt. And so I ended up talking with the Ford foundation where I, I uh, got a contract to look at their asset-based portfolio, which was um, in the South. And it looked at things like air property. And it looked at things like, you know, some of the road home or or programs in, in New Orleans and so forth, like who could get back into a house and how was the land really being used? Um, talking about farming. And there were, there were a lot of projects throughout the South, the, um, uh, Savvy Horn at the landlords, Loss Prevention Project in uh, the Carolinas. There were a lot of different folks a part of it. And I started to really look at these assets and this capital question and ended up doing a body of work where I worked with Black farmers. And I wanted to understand from the very beginning, not this idea that they could, you know, could they get access to money? Because everyone kept saying that there was money available. I think that's important for me to name Takima that. When I started this right after Katrina and I'm talking about black resiliency and I'm talking about access to capital and money to rebuild and housing and land and all of these things, people said to me, there is money. And I couldn't understand why folks would say that there is money available and yet people who needed the money couldn't get to it. I, you know, And I think that, that people would leave that equation alone. They would stop right there and they would just assume that the Black folks that they were thinking of were um, uninterested mm-hmm. uh, or undereducated, or it, but that the onus of being able to yeah. actually get access was on them and not on the actual institutions and systems themselves. And so I started tracking the money. I looked at and I used what, what people would popularly call supply chain But in this particular term, it is value chain. So where we have relationship between each other, I looked at the entire chain from when a farmer made a tomato, you know, grew a tomato all the way to its um, 
consumption and often disposal. So went to, went to the restaurant or went to a CSA basket or went wherever that tomato went. I wanted to understand why other folks were making money in that chain, but that black farmer was not making any money. Like what was going on? And was it a capital issue? Not their failure to market themselves properly, not their failure to rotate crops or where, where was the breakdown and was it a financial breakdown? And as you can imagine, yes, was the answer. It was a financial breakdown. It was not the farmer. It was a financial breakdown. But more importantly, it wasn't just black farmers. It was everybody. Every kind of business had the same problem. And so I um, ended up writing about it a lot and talking about it and ended up winning a very prestigious fellowship, the Nathan Cummings uh, Foundation uh, Fellowship which gave me some space to really look at this. And the fellowship was for economic disruption. And I had one idea, which was that there was this round of money that every business gets in the beginning, whether Mm -hmm. you're a farm-based business or a consulting business, or you've got a, you know, a, a grocery store, whatever your business is in the sort of American ethos of how, entrepreneurship gets going, there is a story that says that you should borrow money from your friends and your family. That's the first round of money that you should get. Borrow money from your friends and family. Mm -hmm. But I was like, well, wait a minute. How do you propose that we borrow money from our friends and family when there is this thing called the racial wealth gap? (laughs) And um, people were like, what? And and the word racial wealth gap had been out there, but the connectiveness between racial wealth gap and how it stops the flow of capital, it wasn't fused together the way that I was talking about it because people, again, would always say there's capital available. They never really graded it against what kind and when and where and how. And I had surmised that the beginning the very beginning, before you ever got out the gate, you were going to fail because you did not have the same level of capitalization opportunities that um, non-Black people had, uh, and mm-hmm. particularly uh, whites in this country. But then there are also other communities that have a different system and setup. And that the idea that there was this one-size-fits-all thing that was happening was just not true. But more right. important was it not more importantly than it not being true. It was a it was a um, a cop out and a violent strategy to actually keep black folks on this hamster wheel all the time, thinking that they yeah. were failing and they weren't. And I, I was like, no, 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 no. What happens to people when you do not invest in them? Right. When, when you don't believe in them and 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 and. and yeah. um, So the runway project becomes this place where we start testing out what we started to call, I believe in you money, believe in you money, money that is meant to be there from the very beginning when you start your entrepreneurial journey. And alongside of that capital that we put out, we also push back against the entire capital paradigm and narrative, even when it comes to VC money and other kinds of money where uh, folks are talking about. Uh, black founders should get access to more capital. And the argument is often we're just as talented. Look at our work. And I'm saying, don't worry about your talent. The problem is not about you. And this is where the frame runway comes from. 
It's not right. about it's not about you and your talent. So that's not even think a thing that I even negotiate about. What the issue is, and I would say I was on a phone call um, early when Runway Project gets going, and I was and 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 the name comes from me saying that um, people wrongly think that the entrepreneur or the pilot is the problem. You will have everybody believe that you as a black entrepreneur and business person, you aren't talented enough. You don't know your field. You're not, you can't research. You're not smart. You can't roll up your sleeves and do something is fundamentally must be wrong with the pilot. Um, And if that fails, then something is clearly wrong with the airplane that the actual business itself doesn't have a strong business model. Doesn't have this, doesn't have, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, But I said, no, no, we have a runway problem. The runway is actually an infrastructure problem. It is a fundamental problem that all the other stuff, God bless you for feeling that way, but that is not the real issue. And if you think about runways, they don't just haphazardly drop a runway down on the ground. That runway has to be a particular length for the types of planes that have to take off. The runway has to also directionally sit in certain ways for it to understand wind dynamics and patterns. I'm over here ready to call and response. Yes, yes, yes. We're about to to get into the call and response because it's, it's got to look at all the other factors impacting that aircraft, that pilot's ability to have a good, successful flight, and those winds and rains and impact things, that is the racial wealth gap. The infrastructure, the groundwork, that is what we call the banking system, what we call, you know, all these other sort of lending um, apparatuses, funds, and so forth. Um, And inside of that is a culture a culture that is built on the exploitation of black and brown bodies for financial gain. And so the reason you don't have the money is because it never was um, intended for you to have that money. And those are the conversations that we have to really get into and say like, no, 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 no. These ideas of collateral and all, all that stuff. These are things that we have to really challenge and the assumptions and the culture of distrust, a culture of distrust that we are building when we continue to replicate these particular things. So that is how I got into the runway project, making loans for black folks early and and this round called friends and family. Jessica, my spirit right now is, um, it's just jumping all up inside of me because you, um, you, you've made this powerful connection, right? Between, it's, it's a setup, right? It's a setup. And often, you know, I amongst them as a Black entrepreneur, we internalize this idea that something is wrong with us. If we could just, if we could just, and that's the way the narrative has been told. And the work that you have done um, has really busted that, that, that narrative wide open. And, and I so appreciate you for that and, and really putting um, the onus where it is, right? Like we can't talk about racial wealth gap and generational wealth and sort of how that has impacted our community's ability to thrive and survive and provide for ourselves and build wealth over time without talking about race, and white supremacy and how um, it shows up, you know, at every turn as we try, 
you know, to capitalize, to uh, grow, you know, our businesses. So I, I really, really appreciate how you've articulated that and the work you've done in that space. I want to talk a little bit about Black Innovation Alliance, since I know that's one of the latest ventures. And then I'm going to pivot us into a conversation about the future. Because, you know, again, going back to that Katrina moment, I think what you and I experienced inside of the region was a real opportunity to reimagine. And again, sitting here in, in COVID-19, I think we're going to have to tap into our radical imagination to think very differently about what the future looks like and, and get real about what we want in that future. So start with talking about Black Innovation um, Alliance and then um, tell me about what you're thinking about in terms of the future. Yeah, I'm so excited about the Black Innovation Alliance. It is it's a, it's made up of a very leaderful group of folks. And I'm I'm I, I want to just let folks know that we started and it was really to the credit of Kelly Burton and and others. I know Kelly personally, so that's who I got my invitation from. I didn't start it, but I was there from the very beginning. The original goal we were going to have a meeting at South by Southwest in March. And COVID starts to spread. And it, the idea was to have this conversation about how do we come together as a unit, as a crew. And to their credit, they kept the conversation going even inside of COVID. So for every week or so, we were on the phone talking about who we wanted to be and what, what we thought. And what I love about the group is it pushes beyond a lot of these folks that I, I ended up uh, who are part of the Black Innovation Alliance. Um, I knew from the tech space and, you know, the 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 um, sort of more traditional entrepreneur space and the black tech space don't always run in the same exact circle. Um, and from as a financier, part of that has to do with the kinds of capital and how long tech has to wait and what is looking for is exits. And so they're not always inside of my portfolio in a very formal sense. But I but the world is obviously requires that every business have some you know, uh, a vertical that has a technical aspect to it. So it was definitely important for me to be a part of that conversation. But what I loved about this group of people, they're very generous, very, very kind, brilliant people, but they also really expanded that conversation and framework to say, no, this is about innovation. This is about like the spirit of creativity and innovation that's embedded in this whole thing. And there was a reclaiming of narrative and language inside of that uh, announcement about the Black Innovation Alliance. So there are right now about 50 or so organizations uh, and people, and it is growing. And the idea is to to be a place where not only we can all come together, but that we can support our own institutions and the communities that we work with through a Black lens and agenda that is towards liberation, which is always, you know, a very, a very important frame to make sure that you are a foundation that you're standing upon. And so this group is that group. I'm excited about what they're going to do. And all my favorite people are in that group. And so I think it's exciting. And I think it does lead itself to a future conversation. I think it does. I think it 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 um it leads us to this conversation about like what does it really look like? And I think one of the things that I've been leaning into, I had a conversation in February 
which we all, uh, the folks who were able to be a part of this conversation, we all mark as the last time we were outside. Um, <laughs> and so, but it was beautiful that we were able to see one another February 2020 in Mobile, Alabama. I invited a group of folks down for a conversation called The Future of Black Capital. And it was around what it would take to really build the Wakanda of our dreams. Like, what is that? And it it, it called in people from three three areas that I thought were really important, culture, politics or power and, and capital. So this cultural conversation, this power or political conversation and capital. And I, and it's centered around black women who, who run in those spaces and do that work to come together to say, okay, let's talk about this finance, this capital issue from, from this lens. And um, my dear friend, Anasa Troutman was there. And, and Anasa, shout out to Anasa. Anasa uh, asked um, a really beautiful question, as she often does. Uh, she she said, as we were sitting there, all black women talking about capital, and particularly in the South, and and how black people move now going forward. And this is February, before coronavirus really like grabs us fully, and before. George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and like before we really, really get the full velocity and veracity of what is going on, we were having this conversation. And, and Anasa says to the group, she says, Who would you be if you lived outside of the patriarchy and white supremacy? Mm-hmm. Who, who would you be? And Gosh, I was stunned by the question because I didn't have an answer for it. Who would I be outside of this? And so when you ask me about where the future is, I think the future requires that we get intimate with with that question for all people, black, white, whomever. Who would you be outside of patriarchy and white supremacy? And it opened up this ton of questions and imaginings for me. Um, And it got me to think about, well, what is the right financial infrastructure that loves Black people? Because the one that we're in, we've inherited um, as a relic of chattel slavery, where you are not the people in the story, you are the commodity. You're the property. This isn't a system that actually sees you as people. Find this is not a government and a financial institution that actually sees it at all. So what are we doing with this is the question for me. Like, if if, if I want to see myself outside of patriarchy and white supremacy, then that means that I clearly am not doing the work I'm doing right now, which is awesome for me, right? Like I'm ready to, you know, go off into the sunset and just like eat some fruits and, you know, splash in the water and just be, you know, black golden goddess on a beach somewhere. <laughs> I'm ready for that. Um, you know, but but as we get to that, as we get to that, the question has to lay very squarely for each and every person no matter where you are geographically, no matter what your um, race is or sexual orientation or any of the other sort of defining kinds of things that we put on folk 
a class and so forth, who would you be outside of patriarchy and white supremacy is a core question to unpack. And for me, it led me to, well, then what does the financial infrastructure that loves black and brown people look like? Because if I'm going to really be liberated, I can't deal with this relic. And that's a big thing to think about. That's a big, big thing, Jessica. You know, um, at Converge, one of our core values is radical imagination Um, and really thinking about radical imagination as a responsibility um, and as an act of justice. So for me to imagine, for me to ponder that question, the same Mm. way my ancestors, our ancestors did who didn't even know freedom, who were born into slavery and did not even know that, but somewhere deep in their spirit, in their humanity, there was a calling to imagine freedom to imagine, to know who they were beyond patriarchy and white supremacy. And so for me, that's also an inherited responsibility because that's how we create the world we want our children to live into. Just like the world we live in now is a manifestation of those freedom dreams of our ancestors. So I so appreciate that. And again, you made a connection for me today that I had in which is out of the disaster of Katrina, right? I think we got a little piece of that. We got a little opening to say, can we reimagine this? Can we think about this differently? What does that look like for us into the future? And I think there's a national conversation and even global conversation now um, that we can have uh, bringing some of that same thought leadership to that. I love that question. Who would we be without Mm -hmm. white? supremacy and patriarchy. And I love the challenge of that question um, because it requires deep healing, deep reflection, um, and and also a lot of not just responsibility to do it for the future, but also to check and heal those spaces inside of us that also perpetuate that. Uh, Back to the point that you were making that we have bought into a system that does not love us. And therefore we play into this idea, into the narrative that we are not good enough. And in order to get a little piece of something, we got to beg and and plead for it and try and prove our worth. But that question cuts right there. Who would I be without it? Who would I be without having to constantly prove myself in this environment? All right. So we're getting close to the end of the interview. And I want to make sure we can um, leave our audience with a few things to start thinking about. So as you lean into that question, as you lean into, you know, imagining a future, um, you know, we are both experiencing COVID-19 and I'm recording this from Jamaica and the news that I am receiving is settle in, buckle in. This is going to be with us for at least two years you know, I, you know, despite what other folks are telling us about a vaccine in six months, that's, we need to be preparing. We need to be digging in. Um, and then there's also, all of this is happening at the same time um, that the racial uprisings in our country um, is bringing conversations to the mainstream about what it means to support Black businesses and, and reparations and et cetera. So, What are your thoughts about this moment and the future of Black business? And and what should we be asking for right now? Mm. 
Well, I think the first thing that we need to be asking for is uniformity and policy around wearing masks. Um, right, right. Like I, 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 um, I, I want to make sure that we live, you know, every other conversation at that point is moot. You know, if you're not here for it, what is an economy if, if, if you're not here? Mm-hmm. in it. So uniformity around the policies around wearing masks and a testing and these other sort of safety protocols that have been shown to drastically decrease the level of exposure and death um, happening in other countries. That is a baseline. That's a, I don't think that there's any business person who should be out saying anything about anything else until you get that straightened out. Because it is an economic question. It is a business question. And it, it, it's, it's all of those things. So that's the first thing I would say you've got to ask for. You've got to demand it. The second thing, though, is the, the, the next place that I go is that you slow everyone down. Uh, as an entrepreneur, as an intermediary, wherever you are, with white folk in your life or folks who are trying to be about that life or however it may show up, that you manage their time and their work in this. And it takes work to manage other folks. But the reason I tell people to slow down and focus on active listening and not activities, be a better listener because you've missed a lot of information here. So you you don't know what to propose. You don't know how to be a good ally yet because you don't actually know anything yet. You've missed a lot of information. If you can if you can start off on June first and say, "Oh my gosh, how did this world get like this?" You've missed too much. You've missed too much. And I need you to go back and focus on active listening before you jump into activities. So. So that's the second thing I would say is if you are in this space and people are saying, what should we do? Make sure that people are protected in your communities and that there is uniformity and you're pushing for that everywhere. The this, this, this second part is all of your uh, allies and well-meaning folk and folk who are, you know, or, or folks who are just bothered by the the unrest and feel um, um, feel some type of way. I can't put my word, finger on the right word in that moment. Those people need to slow down and take a beat and give it the space that it requires to actually learn and be more intimate and more proximate, as Brian Stevenson says, to the problem. You can't get proximate to it until you actually are having more intimate conversations and you're slowing down inside of that. Akaya Winward would always say, you know, time is a justice issue. And I'm sure other activists have said it as well. Time is a justice issue. And so I slow people down on the time because there's always a particular way where it's not the right time or this is, or we've got to hurry up or this time and that time. No, no, no. In this season, you slow it down. You slow it down for your own need to rest. You slow it down because you need to be seen and not skipped over in your hurt and your pain. Uh, and you need to also, uh, slow it down because the folks who do want to do something about this do not have the right skills to actually take it on. So we've got to build that as a community. So that's to deal with the time issue, deal with making sure people have masks. I would say the third thing that, that folks need to be asking for, um, right now, you know, as, as more and more corporations and more and more people are like, we love black businesses and this is that. We have not even scratched the surface 
of the amount of receipts black folks going to bring about these <laughs> statements. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we haven't even gotten there yet. Cause every time you, these folks come out and say, we love black folks. There is a black person in accounting right now. You know, the spiritual accounting who has yes. a list Add of receipts, up. right? Add it up. Add it up and say, wait, 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 sirs, ma'am. I saw your statement uh, on June 2nd and I have found it wanting and highly inappropriate because you did this, 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 and this. So, we have not even fully seen the full shakeout of what is about to happen. So I tell everybody else, no, buckle up, buckle up, get, get ready. Um, and, and, you know, one thing that my dad said to me the other day, I've, I've, I've been focusing a lot on infrastructure, right? Infrastructure that loves black and brown people and making investments. Um, and one of the things I'm supporting is a network of black women executive directors, uh, nonprofit executive directors in Alabama right now. Because we often want to say, you know, black folks got, you know, black women, black girl magic, and you're going to save the electorate. You're going to vote. You're going to you're going to create businesses faster than anybody else. You're going to, you know, uh, you've got degrees more than everybody else. But as a person who's been an executive director, who's been a founder, who's been in those leadership positions, we are woefully underfunded, undersupported, um, not believed by our boards or our contemporaries and all of these other things. And so um, supporting Black women's leadership is not just a nice to have. It's an imperative. It's a must. And um, and my dad said to me, he said, you know, I want to I want to be a part and support your, your Black women's uh, executive director. I think it's so cool. And now, you know, my dad just loves me. And so I was like, thanks, dad. And he said, no, you think I'm actually playing, but I'm telling you, Black women's leadership is just leadership, period. It's leadership without ego. And I want to be a part of that. And so I think what we want right now is to see more leadership without ego. I think what we want to see is a healing and a calling in for not only the world, but that the leadership that comes out must be full of integrity. There is no more living one life over here as a leader and then over here doing something else. The Instagrams and the Facebooks of it all have cleared all of that out. You've got to be in full alignment now and integrity with who you are. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's it's a wrap. So, so what I would say to folks to be asking for now, demand the kind of leadership that is in integrity and not with ego, um, and that is able to lead all of us through a righteous and real processes and lead, meaning it could be multiple people, multiple leaders, all of us who sort of wear the hat in organizations, in our communities, the question and the requirement and the invitation of the moment is to step up and to lead with a set of integrity. Do not fall back on the same system that you have already found disastrous and wanting. Don't fall back into that trap. Show up with something new. Show up being in alignment. And we want that kind of leadership now more than anything. So those are the three things I would say right now um, uh, um, is what we've got to focus in on. And I'll close it with this thought. I believe very much so that when George Floyd uh, passed on and he cried out for his mother, that there was this portal that was opened for the divine feminine and that the divine feminine um, energy has a lot to do with repair. It has a lot to do with understanding the full cost and full understanding of life. 
not this sort of, you know, kind of here, there, whatever, but it, it it's intimately intertwined with understanding what it takes to actually be and live. The word economics actually means what, do, what it takes to take care of home. And the people who take care of home are women. And so I believe that making our investments into our women, doing the healing work necessary um, and having leadership with integrity, slowing down and being active listeners and not going into activations or activities before you've gotten good at that. And making sure that fundamentally, no matter what, before you start prioritizing your business and your money and what you need to do to make it, that you look out your window for all your neighbors and you, your friends and you demand that they have a mask, period, yes. period, period. You don't have a business making any money. If you can't take care of the people outside the door, you don't have a business calling yourself a leader or anything else. People have to be around to buy your products and services, ma'am. Take care of the people and you'll be taken care of. Oh, Jessica, I'm so excited to have you here today and to call you my my sister girlfriend. And I look forward to the work we're going to continue to do together in the future. Um as we wrap up, I've got three questions that I've been asking all the guests. It's been so interesting to hear different people's perspectives on these. Um, and I can't wait to hear what you're going to say. So uh, the way this goes, I ask the question and you can um, riff off of it. I really want to hear, um, you know, the thing that comes up for you first. Um, which I know you don't, you, you, you will do. <laughs> so the first question is what is freedom? Mm, you know, freedom. And my, my team member, Nina Robinson, who is a brilliant uh, financial activist and fund manager, we were on a call yesterday and she said, um, cause we talked about this. She said it is freedom is um, having abundant snacks and nature and ability to iterate your ideas. So that's mm. freedom. I love it. Who inspires you? Oh, my mother who has since passed on. She is a guiding force to runway. She her 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 life ends right at the exact moment that I launched Runway Project. And so any success that I get is so intimately tied to who she is, who she was. Um and a legacy of other Black women whose stories you don't often hear about, but they have been like holding it down and dreaming and inspiring and thinking of cool stuff and parenting and loving in the conditions that like, you know, right now we're all appalled at seeing. But these folks been still trying to show up and trying to give us the breadcrumbs of how to get out. And I adore them. I adore them. And you are one of them. Why do you keep fighting? Love. Mm -hmm. Period. Mm -hmm. Period. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's so interesting. 2020 has been a doozy <laughs> for us all. And I don't think there is, uh, there, there's definitely something divine to all of this, that we are on the precipice of a new decade and we are on the precipice of, of change. And uh, we're a space where humanity really has to make some decisions. From this conversation, you know, there's that saying, the future is female. I am sure that the future is not only female, but it is Black. 
the future Jess and um, all the Jessicas and all the Takimas and all the Morgans. Um, I'm so grateful for you uh, as a friend. I'm grateful that you are in this world and you are doing this work. I'm grateful for your voice, your thought leadership. And I am grateful that you spent some time with me on the beginning of my journey with this platform. Um, I appreciate you and I love you. I love you and I'm honored to do it and excited about all of what you're doing and can't wait to hear the other guests that you have. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We're going to keep this new segment going. Hey, sis, I see you. So it's time to recognize another female leader in our community doing big things. So for this segment of I See You, I like to acknowledge and congratulate and bring to center stage none other than Carmen James Randolph. Carmen James Randolph joined the Greater New Orleans Foundation staff in February of 2014 as vice president for programs. Carmen previously worked at the Washington-based Eugene and Agnes E. Meyer Foundation, where she was there for 15 years, including three years as a senior program officer in education. While at the Meyer Foundation, Carmen led various award-winning initiatives support to support a wide range of work, including education organizing, charter school improvement, and post-secondary education reform. As a leader in education reform in Washington, D.C., Carmen also held numerous national and local leadership roles with Grantmakers for Education, the Youth Transition Funders Group, a national network of grantmakers whose mission is to help all youth make a successful transition to adulthood by the age of 25. The Step Up Advisory Board, which addresses the graduation crisis in the District of Columbia, and New Schools Venture Funds, D.C. Schools Fund. As Vice President for Programs at the Greater New Orleans Foundation, Carmen develops and manages the foundation's grant-making portfolios in the areas of economic opportunity, organizational effectiveness, the environment, health and human services, arts and culture, education, and youth development. So this week's I See You Sis goes out to you, Carmen. Thank you so much for your leadership uh, in our community here in New Orleans and the contributions you've made in Washington, D.C. and the contributions you are making nationally. Thank you so much for your investment in my leadership and helping me grow the Greater New Orleans Funders Network. And this week, we just celebrate you, lift you up, and want to make sure this entire community knows the incredible work that you are doing every day on their behalf. Thank you, Carmen James Randolph. Hey, you. Are you following me yet? How else will you be the first to know what's next? You can find all of my podcast episodes on my website, www.convergeforchange.com, under the podcast tab. Follow me on social media on Facebook at Converge for F-O-R Change, on Instagram at I am Takima, and at Converge for change. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast library like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also catch the show live on WBOK1230.com, or if you're in New Orleans, just adjust your radio to WBOK1230 AM every Saturday from 12 to 1 p.m. All right, y'all. So that's it. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Converge for Change, the business of social justice. I hope you enjoy hearing from Jessica Norwood and you can keep in touch with her. So follow her on Instagram at the.runway.project and also at build with BIA. All right. 
Also follow me at Takima on Instagram and Facebook and go over to the Converge website and check out the new website. We are at www.converge4change.com. So go check out the new website and the new landing page for the podcast, www.converge4change.com. Next week, join me for part two of the series on the future of Black business as I sit down with Aaron Walker, founder of Camelback Ventures. Until then, I am Takima.